0: All right, thanks so much, Chris. At this time, we're gonna continue our conversation around the question, how are we to respond?
1: It's a question we hope we're all asking as followers of Jesus. We are experiencing a pivotal moment in history right now. Uh, I saw a meme this week that said, I've always wanted to experience the Spanish flu, the Great Depression, and the 1968 Civil Rights Movement all in the same month. It makes you laugh and cry out of disbelief and then get really sober. Because if we think about it, our kids are going to search their memories, they're gonna look back for what it felt like to live through these times. Our grandchildren are going to be studying this in school and they're gonna ask Ask us what it was like, what it felt like, what did we respond with when the scar tissue of systemic and structural racial injustice burst open in our generation. When the unjust death of George Floyd was put before us in a video after countless other videos, how did we respond as followers of Jesus? If you're anything like me that might put this Tension this this pressure on your shoulders and trying to figure it out and there is a tension here There should be discomfort for us as will said, you know in his snapshot Uncomfortable conversations that we're willing to sit in that we're willing to allow for the sake of reflection So please let us take you there today together with the hope of the gospel in mind which shifts us from weight bearers to participants in gospel renewal Yeah, and the framework
0: framework for how we're addressing this question, how are we to respond, is really to seek God in His Word. How would He have us respond? What are the principles that He has for us? Not how do we respond as red or blue, Democrat or Republican, but as followers of Jesus, united as, as citizens of heaven, followers of His. And so we're going to look at the example of Jesus. Uh, for him as, uh, Look to him as our model and look to him as our guide. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14.
1: Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria.
0: It's easy to forget that Jesus, the Savior, came into this world as a marginalized, oppressed Jew. We all know that the power holders of his day were the Romans, and we all know that the Romans abused that power. But even under the Roman power structures, there were substructures that the Jews had in place, power structures of their own. And if you look at verse 5, you see that the religious leaders, the power structure of the, the Pharisees, were making life very difficult for Jesus. They were trying to hold him back, push him down, th- down thwart his efforts. Jesus was marginalized and oppressed by on many fronts. And yet, what did Jesus do? Who did he regularly, time after time, seek out, even as he was marginalized and oppressed himself? But the powerless, the marginalized, the oppressed, the broken, and the hurting. I mean, even this Samaritan woman calls it out. Look again at verse 9 and 10. You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Back in that day, Jews and Samaritans absolutely despised one another. We're talking way more than Republicans and Democrats despise one another today, if that's hard to believe. And in their relationship, the Jews held a little bit more of the power, even though, again, Romans held all the power. And so the Jews would try to use that what little power they had to make life miserable for the Samaritans, and the Samaritans in turn would try to make life miserable for the Jews. And even in the midst of all of this mess, Jesus speaks to this woman. Now we need to understand this was radical in so many ways. And we've already talked about how Jews and Samaritans didn't associate with with one another. But secondly, because she was a woman. I mean, this was 2,000 years ago. Jesus, being a rabbi, had a code that the rabbis actually made on their own. It's not part of the Bible. It said, rabbis ought not to talk publicly with any woman, including their own wives. And yet, Jesus spoke with this woman. And then, there's the fact that this woman was an outcast. I mean, look again at verse 6. It says that she was out at the well, drawing water at noon. That's in the middle of the desert heat. Every Bible scholar tells us that this meant she was an outcast. Otherwise, she would have gone at the time that all the other gals were out there drawing the water at the beginning of the day before the sun was just beating down. Even uh, later in the story, we find that she had been married to and divorced five men and was living at that time as she was talking with Jesus with another guy who was not her husband. She was an outcast. She was shunned by society, shunned by the religious leaders, and yet Jesus loved her, engaged her, approached her. Mm -hmm. Even being marginalized and oppressed himself, he went for the broken, the, the hurting, and even to this gal who probably would have described her own life situation as hopeless. So what does Jesus' example here serve as our guide in terms of how we are to respond in the midst of what's happening in our country? He shows us the importance of at least three things. First, Jesus shows us the importance of proximity. He shows us the importance of proximity. Look again at verses 3 and 4. It says, So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria Uh, Now real real quickly We need to talk about the geography In that time Uh, The Jews had territory both in in the south And in the north In the south is Judea In the north it was Galilee And connecting those two uh, uh, provinces Was the little sliver of land and and water uh, uh, Surrounding the Jordan River And what the Jews would do in those days Is do everything they could to travel All the way around Samaria which was smack dab in between those two provinces because they wanted to have nothing to do with the Samaritans. But Jesus said, it says here, had to go through Samaria. And sadly, actually, the force of meaning there is missed in our English translation. Because in the original Greek, it's not saying that he had to go there out of necessity, but more the sense that he had to go there out of feeling a sense of personal obligation. Jesus felt just compelled that he had to go through Samaria, probably with this gal in mind, Mm. probably with the people that this gal would ultimately end up reaching with the love of God herself. Mm. And then look again at verse seven. It says, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, what we see is Jesus went, Jesus sought out, Jesus initiated his interaction and a relationship with this woman. He valued her immensely. This is incredibly important for us in times like we are in now, the importance of proximity. Proximity matters. Because so many people right now are going online and saying all sorts of things and sharing all sorts of opinions, and yet they don't have a single relationship with a person of color, let alone is in regular dialogue with someone. Before we respond in word or action, we first need to bring ourselves in relationship with those perhaps not like us or experience life differently.
1: We all carry implicit cultural understandings and worldviews that come out of where we grew up, uh, our family of origin, the people that we're proximate to. Uh, To really understand someone, there has to be relationship. We, We wanna encourage one another this morning to start with reflection and ask ourselves how proximate we are, we really are or have been in our lives to friends of different races and cultural backgrounds. Our experiences are all different, but if you search and and look back and you find that you grew up in a neighborhood with kids that were mostly like yourself here in the US, that was in large part by systemic design. For a five-minute sociology lesson, you can go online and Google redlining neighborhoods. Maybe add uh, the city that you grew up in and a map uh, might pop up. This was a civic practice in the 1960s that kept neighborhoods segregated and prevented African. Americans from buying homes or accumulating wealth, Um, this practice has carried over to how our neighborhoods and schools are erratically divided and unfairly, in a lot of ways, uh, unequally shaped today. It's where good neighborhoods and bad neighborhoods come in our vernacular. This is just one example to help many of us probably uh, start to understand just a little bit more personally the impact of systemic racial injustice in our society. To tie it to today's text, the structures of this nation have kept us going to different wells or going to the well at a different time than our brothers and sisters of color. Will we look for opportunities in this generation to meet them at the well, to be proximate to one another? Parents, do we put our kids in spaces where they can get to know children that have a different worldview, that come from a different cultural understanding, not just in terms of race, although that's important, uh, but those who may not share the same economic means or cultural worldview? Whether it's school or friendships initiated at a park, are we giving them an intuitive understanding at a young age of diversity and inclusion that comes from their personal relationships and experience? Are we modeling these relationships for them? Dr. Anita Phillips, a mental health expert and a third-generation minister in the black church, put it this way in speaking about racial and cultural understanding in this moment. If I don't know what you look like when you're well, How can I support your healing? It's a powerful question for us to consider together. Jesus shows us the importance of proximity, of knowing and seeking to understand the worldview that our brothers and sisters who are hurting carry with them. He knows it's hard, that's why he models it for us time and time again in scripture.
0: Next, Jesus shows us the importance of posture. And I think this is really a key one here, but he shows us the importance of posture. Look again at verse seven. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? This is a profound interaction. Jesus asking, will you give me a drink? His first interaction with this gal was asking her for help. White friends, If Christ can do this, why can't we sit at the well of our black brothers and sisters whose experience has been birthed out of a history of systemic oppression in our country, who may very well have different implicit cultural understandings than we have? Why can't we sit at the well and ask for a drink? It is really easy right now to be quick to condemn the violence and riots. Now, real quickly, it's not good to—we con- don't condone violence. But if we are only quick to condemn, and if all we do is condemn, then we forget that the gospel first calls us to seek to understand. Dr. Reverend Dr. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., who stood for nonviolent protest, said this, I think America must see that riots do not develop out of thin air. In the final analysis, the riot is the language of the unheard. What is it that America has failed to hear?
1: However we express it, as followers of Jesus during this time, it's really important that we don't assume we know what is helpful or that we skip over self-reflection in that process. We want to act quickly and we're actively considering ways that we can respond to help. But this passage shows us that a posture which responds like Jesus will humbly ask for help, will defer to and include those who are hurting in the conversation first. Let's find and hold the space to listen to brothers and sisters of color, including and especially those who also follow Jesus, with whom we are one, together the body of Christ. Their pain, their stories, their perspective. And unless it's volunteered in relationship, doing so in a way that pours into them, that doesn't exhaust them further, finding resources that already exist, books that have been written, talks that have been given, let's get to the place where we don't just say, but deeply understand from a proximate posture of humility that we are one, all equally valued in the eyes of our creator.
0: Jesus shows us the importance of our posture. To quote Pastor Will again from a snapshot that we got to listen to earlier, he said, right now we have to have the posture of love and humility, the posture of a learner, of a student, of a servant, and that goes for all of us. Sometimes we think the most important thing we can do is say something, but the reality is the most important thing we can do is listen and learn. Jesus shows us the importance of proximity. He shows us the importance of posture. Finally, he shows us the importance of proclamation. Uh, Let's pick back up in our text where we left off in verse 10.
1: everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life.
0: Cindy and I had the great privilege of learning from Dr. Pastor Ephraim Smith this week, pastor up in the Sacramento area, national director of City to City, a cohort that we're a part of. And he was telling us, a group of church planners, that he grew up actually two blocks from where George Floyd was murdered. Actually, he had learned to ride his bike on that same street and had shopped regularly at the mini-mart there on the street corner. And even knows and grew up with the chief of police in Minneapolis. And so he was talking with us. It was a great privilege. And he started talking, uh, his talk by saying, to mostly white church leaders. Hey, I'm going to talk to you as family today. I'm going to talk to you as a brother. I want to start by saying, guys, I am tired. I'm so tired. I'm tired physically. I'm tired relationally. I'm tired mentally, emotionally. And it's hard for me to have hope right now. If I'm real with you, because it's easy to think that it's impossible for our political leaders to actually work together and bring about some actual meaningful change. And it's hard to believe that the news media is actually gonna report things fairly and not throw in a bias that's just inaccurate and detrimental. And he said, it's actually also hard to believe that my white brothers and sisters will ever understand what I'm going through. But, he said, I do have hope because my hope ultimately isn't in humankind. My hope ultimately ultimately, is in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who came himself marginalized and oppressed, who gave up his throne in heaven, not for a seat of authority and power, but to give his life for the sake of us having life, to reconcile all people first to himself and also to one another. That is where my hope is. And so Cindy and I, we ended the call, and we couldn't help but be filled to the brim after hearing that. Why? Because here, Pastor Smith was pouring into us as a wellspring of living water. He was proclaiming the gospel over us, even as he was proclaiming it for himself. Someone who was saying that it's just so hard, there's just so much suffering. But he was was claiming it for himself and proclaiming it over, over us that we might receive and take that and pour it out to others. That is our calling, to follow the one, Jesus, who is just who as he is merciful and he is redeeming all things to himself and will ultimately bring all people to himself who cry out for his name, all tribes, tongues, and nations uh, to himself in the next life. And so our part here and now is to join him in that work. Our eyes are on heaven. The Our eternal and ultimate hope is in heaven. We proclaim the gospel of Jesus' death on the cross and forgiveness of sins and life forever in Him, even as we work here and now for racial and social reconciliation that we deeply need. We work for it to be on earth as it is in heaven. Mm
1: -hmm. Do we hold that wellspring of hope today? Do we have that? And it's worth processing together. If you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, but you're drawn to this wellspring, to this radical heart for justice that Jesus has, to the hope of eternity perfectly reconciled that he promises and holds out to us with the cross, we want to invite you into his family today. We would love to walk with you in that and we would love to know if you make that decision. To those of us who do follow Jesus, in unity, let's ask God to do a transforming work in us during this critical moment when no one can ignore the fact that our world as we know it appears to be blowing up. Will this be a passing moment in our lives or a pivotal one? Will we dig our identity into the systems and structures of this world, clinging to them in ways that may unintentionally drive disunity and brokenness? Or will we take another step toward claiming our primary identity as citizens of heaven and allowing that to sustain us with the spring of living water welling up to eternal life, freeing us, paradoxically, to be a part of long-term renewal and change in this life? Please hear this. We are not saying that systems and institutions, that political parties and structures are bad. They are a necessary part of this world and justice must be worked out in them. But we are saying that just as we are individually sinful, sin penetrates into every system and structure here on earth. And if we cling to those systems and structures more than we cling to Jesus, if we put our identity in being a citizen of a structure more than we put our identity into a citizen of heaven, it actually makes it harder for us to be a unifying, loving, renewing presence in our communities. We have to start with ourselves, with reflection, with our posture, and where we put our ultimate trust. Deep healing is needed in our society right now. Would that be greatly helped by an uncommon unity and humility from us who are the church?
0: Salvation and ultimate hope lie in Jesus, the living water. And right now, it's hard to find hope in structures and systems. A lot of people from every which perspective are all asking, what's the path forward? But we know the ultimate path forward that Jesus is moving towards, and that is bringing all people that would cry out to him into his family, to be with him forever. And so we proclaim those words and that good news even as we work here and now for the sake of bringing reconciliation on earth earth. So how can we be in relationship with those who experience life differently than us, that that think differently? How can we have a deep humility and a posture of listening and learning? And how can we proclaim the gospel and proclaim that the, that God is about reconciliation then and now? Let's all work towards that end and consider our roles in this. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you so much for entering our world as one who understands, as one who was marginalized, powerless, and oppressed. You left your throne in heaven, a position of power and authority, not to gain a position of power and authority here on earth, but to take a position of great vulnerability, even to the point of death. Would you help us live more deeply in your love, and on mission that you have for this broken world. And would you help us be wellsprings of your living water? Would you help us in this moment in our country be conduits for change, gospel change? And most of all, would you use this moment and our lives to point people to Jesus and eternal hope that only he gives and yet offers so freely. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm. All right, let's pass things back over to continue worship and song at this time.